A few hours ago, I met with the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia, Janet Austin, and she has granted my request to dissolve the Legislative Assembly, and the general election will be held in British Columbia on Saturday, October 24th. Okay, there's John Horgan there, leader of the NDP, triggering that snap election call, and here we go. October 24th is election day in British Columbia, and let's get our first candidates panel of this campaign going on the show here. I'm very grateful to all of them being here. On the line, I got three key uh, MLAs, they're all seeking re-election. We got all three major parties represented here. On the line, we got Adrian Dix for the NDP running for re-election in Vancouver Kingsway. Adrian, thank you for coming on. Hey, good morning, Mike. Good morning, Adrian. Thank you. Jazz Johal from the Liberals is on the line running for re-election in Richmond, Queensboro. Jazz. Thank- good morning. Thank you. Adam Olson also on the line from the Green Party seeking re-election in Sandwich North in the Islands. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, Mike, Adrian, and Jazz. Okay, thank you, gentlemen, to all three of you. Adrian Dix, let me go to you first. I think you're going to be kind of the, the meat in the sandwich here on this thing, I think, because <laughs> you, 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 got, that, Mike. Yeah, you got both guys probably going after you. Uh, I guess the obvious question early on here is, why are we doing this? I mean, you know, your party leader had a deal with the Green Party to not call an early election. We got a scheduled election law in the province for next uh, October of 2021. Why now an election campaign? Adrian Dix. Well, there's a COVID-19 pandemic in BC and in, and in the world, and it's going to be with us for years to come. It's going to be a long time before we see a vaccine. And uh, I think it's a good time to have an election in the sense that uh, we need to take action over the next four years to put in place a health plan and an economic plan that makes sense for people. We had a CASA agreement. It's absolutely true. 96% of which I think is completed. The things that matter to people have been completed. And this is an opportunity to have an election and for the people to decide uh, how we go forward. Uh, the premiers put forward a plan for health care, a plan for the economy that's comprehensive, that puts people first. And I think, uh, I think that's Good. the right plan. But the opposition parties will have the chance to put forward their plan. And ultimately, yeah. the people will decide and an election that, uh, with the help of the Provincial Health Office and everything else, will be conducted Adamals. in a safe way. Adam Olson, the CASA agreement is the deal with you guys in the Green Party. Your thoughts? Yeah, so it wasn't uh, an agreement between leaders. Uh, my signature was on that. Adrian's signature was on that. In essence, it wasn't just John Horgan breaking the agreement. It was every sitting uh, NDP MLA that, uh, that sat by and let the Premier do that that broke the agreement. And I you have to ask British Columbians what they think of that kind of approach. And, I, and I'd also like to to just add that, yes, we are going to be in a pandemic. And yes, uh, Mr. Dix has, has worked uh, very well with the Dr. Henry throughout the last number of months. Uh, now is not the time to break democracy in order to, to put forward uh, uh, the, the, the plan that was funded by all three support from all three parties. What's, what's really egregious here, the way Adrian just, just profiled it, is that this is the NDP plan. No, it's not. This is British Columbia's plan the public service worked to put this plan together based on an agreement uh, to support a $1.5 billion taxpayer-funded uh, amount of money to, uh, to deliver the services that British Columbians expect their government to deliver in a okay. global pandemic. Okay, Jazz Joe, I know you want to respond to that, Adrian Dix. Let me go to Jazz Joe Hall from the Liberals. Jazz. Well, look, uh, uh, Michael, this is nothing more than a power grab. Uh, this is about trust. This is what the first few days of this election is, is showing us, is that we didn't need to have this election. As you can, as Adam has said, they were working well with the government. We were working well with the government during this pandemic. Whether uh, there is a vaccine today or next year, there will be a vaccine. 
that we know we have a set election date we did not need to be going out right now the challenges we have right now is interacting with voters my concern is over low voter turnout it's not the same type of election we didn't need this at this point the question i would have for mr dix is a simple one did you try to talk um, the premier out of this stupid stupid idea at this point and does he believe it's the wrong time to hold an election it's ridiculous that we're out there right now people concerned about their health and safety and mr dix comes out and says well now is the right time no it's not did anybody speak out in that caucus and tell mr horgan okay his backroom boys this is absolutely wrong adrian dix uh an election is an opportunity for everyone to be able to pass judgment and democracy i just I disagree with what uh, what Adam said, and uh, I say it respectfully. I think this is an opportunity for the parties to lay out where we're going to take the province over the next few years, and this is about the people, and they get to choose. And I think that's the important thing. We're going to have a 30-day campaign. I absolutely agree it's going to be different than in past campaigns, that we're going to have to be safe, that we're going to have to get our message out. It's going to be much more on the phone than any other way and over the Internet. But we can do that. We can do that together. We can have a debate about uh, how the province can go forward, both in health okay. and on okay. the economy. And okay, Jazz, I'm looking yeah. forward to talking about those issues. Yeah, we'll get to that. Jazz, Joe Hall, uh, you know, one more point on, on the election. He, as he, point, he says the election campaign can be run safely. Bonnie Henry has said the same thing. Are, are you suggesting otherwise? Well, you go knock on a door. You're not sure if that person's going to open the door. You're not sure if that person wants you at the door. There's huge challenges of even having campaign workers. There's, no, of course, no rallies. It is different. My concern is when you have workers out there, uh, volunteers, trying to get uh, people engaged in the, in the process, it's just not the same. And my worry is that people are not going to be voting as much as they did in the past. This, so that my concern is a low voter turnout. And there was no need for it. We have a set election date for next year. To say that somehow that we need one now is ridiculous. All three parties have been working well together in regards to dealing with the public health and okay. safety issues that British Columbians are concerned about. Okay. So to say that uh, now is the time is absolutely absurd. Adam Olson for for the Green Party. Do you guys feel like you've been betrayed with this election and uh, that goes against the letter of the agreement? Like, how would you describe what the what Horgan has done here, triggering this election? Well, I, I, absolutely, he went against the agreement. Uh, yeah. Not only did he go against the agreement, but every member of his caucus went against the agreement. That's the question that British Columbians should be asking is, can you trust people who will put their name on a line, and then when it advantages them, they they tear it down? I mean, Mr. Horgan and his entire ca- uh, caucus pulled the house down around them unnecessarily. And and Mr. You know, Adrian wants to wants to try to, I, I think, say that we've got two equal elections now or a, a year from now. That's just not the case. The, the reality is, is that all three parties right now are looking for candidates, asking yeah. people to, to set aside their lives for, a, for the potential of a, of a four-year job uh, in, a, in, a, in a snap election where Mr. Horgan decides to break democracy and break the, the, the government. I think is just ridiculous. To I don't even know how you can say it with a straight face that okay. the election today is is equal to an election a year from now. Okay, I think we I think we covered that thoroughly. The whole issue of the timing of the election. Uh, let me go back to Adrian Dix for for the NDP. Let's talk about some of the issues in this campaign. Uh, one of the things that Horgan has said off the bat is he accuses the Liberals of of representing the wealthy and the well connected. I spoke to the Liberal leader on the show yesterday. I asked him if we would bring in a tax cut for high income earners. He said no. Uh, but there will be a tax announcement from the Liberals next week. I, I suspect the Liberals are going to announce a middle-class tax cut next week. That's just kind of my gut feeling. How is that standing up for uh, the wealthy and the well-connected? Your thoughts? 
Well, I think uh, you'll see. Uh, we'll see what the Liberal Party says in its platform uh, with respect to, for example, the speculation tax, which they've consistently opposed, whether they think that's the priority or not. That's the political debate. But but we have what we're saying, and I want to be, and I've always been very positive about what we're saying on the economy. We've instituted a plan that puts people at the heart of the plan that seeks to provide opportunity for jobs at a time when people need jobs, that gives them support when people need support, that supports businesses with uh, tax cuts that support employment. I, I think that's the plan we put forward, that the premiers put forward, and I want to be positive about that and say that I think that's the right approach, equally on health care, which I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to discuss. I think what we've done over three years and are planning to do over the next four years is what the healthcare system needs to respond, not only to the pandemic, but all the other health issues that people are facing. Okay, Jazz Joe Hall for the Liberals. Your thoughts? Well, look, uh, I think uh, speaking on behalf of uh, middle-class voters or all voters, look, people feel that uh, right now are very concerned about where they stand in life, uh, particularly with uh, with COVID. We got 150,000 unemployed British Columbians today that were employed uh, in, in February. So there's a huge issue in regards to getting this economy rolling. We've got 10 to 20,000 businesses that may go under by the end of next year, according to the Business Council of British Columbia. So we do need a robust plan. The money that uh, the NDP have put forward, the 1.5 billion, which we all approved back in March, yeah. should have been out the door much earlier. And instead of holding on to it right before an election and announcing it, is the wrong thing to do. The tourism industry, $680 million that they're asking for help. In this case, uh, $50 million has been offered up front, and a task force will be set up another $50 million potentially. I don't think that's okay. enough. Okay, Adam, Adam, Olsen. Industry that needs- Adam Olsen for the Green Party real quick, and then, and then we'll take a break. What, is your, what would you say is your top priority in this campaign? The well, look, I think that we, we're going to be responding to the issues that are facing British Columbians' day-to-day lives. We're going to be responding to the uh, chronic underfunding of education. It was a, a main plank in our platform in 2017. It's going to be a main plank in our platform in 2020. The fact is is that people like me, uh, families are, are, are afraid for their children right now. We need to make sure that they can get to school safely, that teachers uh, can teach safely, that the supports are there. for, for uh, So we're going to be rolling out. Uh, a platform over the coming days and weeks that focus on okay. the day-to-day lives of British Columbians. All right, welcome back to our election panel. Adrian Dix, Jazz Johal, Adam Olson. Let's go right to your phone calls here now. Susan on the line in Vancouver. Hi. Hey, good morning. Really appreciate this opportunity, Mike. But sure. anyway, um, for a ma- uh, Mr. Dix, I suppose, because he's the health care minister, I'm one of these essential health care workers that was promised uh, that uh, there was going to be an extra $4 an hour from uh, the March, I think it was March the 15th, until the end of July. We were supposed to see that money. Uh, show me the money. Where is it? Okay. Nobody's, we've, we've got a, a thing okay, from let me, let's, the union let's, saying late let's get his an, Let's get his answer. Adrian Dix. Hi, Susan. Uh, it's coming. Uh, 250,000 workers are going to get... Uh, Uh, that bonus, and it's because of the extraordinary work they've done during the pandemic. We've been working very closely to see that that happened. It's now really a government processing issue, and those checks should be arriving soon. Uh, As expected, it was announced, I think, back in June by the provincial and federal government. Your money's coming. You can count on it. In addition to that, we uh, have raised the standard of health care workers across the long-term care sector under the single site uh, proposal. We've leveled up salaries and people are already receiving uh, that money. And it's important okay. because we need to ensure that our uh, both our care workers are respected 
and that uh, that we can continue to hire care workers that we need in the coming years. Okay, Jazz Johal, would you acknowledge that the NDP government's done a good job managing this pandemic, and is, does that make them tough to beat in this election? Well, look, I think all parties have worked together uh, in, in their capacity to do a good job here on behalf of the people of British Columbia. They didn't want to see partisan politics. Uh, and we all, all parties probably took a, a hit from their own partisan supporters saying, look, you've got to be more aggressive. But I don't think that's what people of British Columbia wanted, wanted to see. Uh, I recall when we all voted on that uh, $5 billion extra spending for, the, for COVID emergency back in March. It was a very jovial uh, interaction with uh, the Premier and everybody else, the Greens. We all worked together to make sure the priorities of British Columbians were being met. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm personally offended by this election being called, that we have been working together. We've do- been doing what the people of British Columbia want us to do. Okay, Adam and Olson, so Adam Olson, do you want... Election shouldn't happen. Thank you, Adam Olson. You want to weigh in on that? Well, no. I mean, I no. I mean, I think that it was said well. I think that we um, uh, we did set aside uh, the, the partisan differences to to work together and and to to hear uh, the premier now uh, throw out a, a, a couple of uh, a, a couple of bills that they weren't able to get absolute support on immediately because they because frankly the drafting of the bills. Uh, was not good enough, and the yeah. consultation and engagement wasn't good enough. is 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 frankly uh, uh, really disturbing and uh, a, a, a sad attempt at a rewrite in history. Okay, let's uh, squeeze in another call. Adam in Coquitlam. Hi, Adam. Oh, hi, Mike. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, just a question for the panel on uh, COVID testing. Um, our family just uh, yesterday went through, or this week went through the process. Um, certainly, uh, kudos to the healthcare workers. They do an amazing job. Frustration with the process. Um, it took co- over five hours from leaving my house to, to actually get the, the test completed. And then following that, um, the, uh, the test alert uh, didn't work. It was four hours yesterday on the phone calling the toll-free line to, to okay. try to obtain test results for my kids. Okay, and Adrian Dix, can you, re- can you respond briefly to that as we run out of time? Adrian Dix. Well, uh, thanks, Adam, for the question. I think we've been doing more testing in the last uh, number of weeks than at any time since the beginning of the pandemic. Yesterday, I think it was about 6,300 tests. We had about a 1.3% test positive rate. And I think the healthcare workers are, do- are working increasingly quickly to see that that happened. I think the government has recently, for example, signed an agreement with Life Labs as part of the effort to expand uh, testing capacity over the next uh, number of weeks and months so that we're yeah. able to meet testing requirements during uh, the flu season, which could should uh, commence after the election, but in November and December. And so uh, we're, ma- we're uh, responding to the very issue that uh, Adam's raised, and I thank him for raising it. Okay, we, sadly, we just got two minutes left. Um, go back to Jazz Johal. Jazz, do you just want to sum up? What, what is the message you want to get across to voters here? I think uh, what I'd say to voters today is we are in an unnecessary election, and the Premier has unleashed his forces that we can't control. Now, so the fact that we're into it now, I want British Columbians to know that they should, I believe we should be focusing on A, public health and safety, and B, how do we get British Columbians back to work, and how do we get our economy rolling again. Over the next couple of okay. weeks, uh, Andrew Wilkinson's going to be uh, op- uh, introducing our platform, and it'll lead to, I'm sure, very robust and provocative conversation. It's going to be bold, and I look forward to British Columbia and interact in regards to the ideas. So All right. Stay tuned for our platform. Adam, Adam Olson, we have 30 seconds. I'll give you the last word. Go ahead. I just, I, for me, I just really don't want democracy to be the first casualty of, of, uh, of the NDP's decision to 
uh, to break our government and to send us to an early election unnecessarily. I really hope that people find a way to get out to vote safely and that uh, if they're feeling fearful about getting out into public, that they contact Elections BC and ask for a mail-in ballot so that they can participate in our democracy. It's the most important okay. thing that we protect right now. Okay, I think that's a good way to end it, to encourage everybody to participate in this election and certainly vote by mail if that makes you the most comfortable and contact Elections BC and make sure you do that. I want to thank all three of you. The time flew by and I think it just goes to show we got to do it again. So I want to thank all of you for being here. Adrian Dix for the NDP, Jazz Joe Hall for the Liberals, Adam Olson for the Greens. But first, let's talk about the situation in the largest homeless encampment in Canada, and it is in Strathcona Park in East Vancouver. Lots of new problems down there, and you got to feel for the people living in those tents with the bad fall and winter weather coming on. Let's talk about it now. My guest is Katie Lewis. She is with the Strathcona Residents Association, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Katie. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. So let's talk about some of the things that have been happening there in the neighborhood and in the uh, the park. And one of the ones that's been uh, disturbing, and you kind of knew this was coming, sadly, and we've talked before about the safety for the people who are living in the camp. And now we've got police making a plea for help and information after a resident of the encampment was found seriously injured in Strathcona Park due to an assault. Uh, late Monday night, and and they fear that this person could have been, what, lying in the ground for up to 12 hours with no one to help them? Katie, what happened there? Yeah, um, you know, and this is a, was a really, really concerning situation. Um, and, we, you know, obviously we're feeling that the campers aren't safe um, yeah. right now. Yes, a man was um, quite seriously beaten. Um, however, uh, no one came to his aid, and he lay there for up to 12 hours. Um there was a similar um, situation happen at Oppenheimer. So, well, it's, you know, it's really concerning. Um, it's unfortunately not surprising. Um, and, you know, we were actually basically told that something like this would probably happen. And now it has. Yeah, no, when we talked earlier, you were afraid something like this could happen for sure. Let's have a listen to this. This is a spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department, Tanya Vicenten. And here she is talking about the person who was left out there on the ground. No one called police, no one called for paramedics, and this man uh, was laying there for a very long time and, and, and could have died. Okay, yeah, really tragic situation there. And I, I thought they had protocols there in the park for people to look after each other. I don't know, did it work, not work in this case, or what happened? Well, I th yeah, I think some of the challenges with the park is that there's kind of multiple encampments now. It's not just uh -huh. one. Um, so there are, uh, it's actually, I'm not, I haven't quite figured out exactly where um, he was found. But yeah, there are supposed to be protocols. There are supposed to be people walking around, checking on people, making sure they're safe. Um, but clearly in this case, um, some, they weren't doing their jobs. And, and as a result, you know, uh, a man may die. Okay, the Vancouver Police Department uh, concerned about the situation. Here's that VPD spokesperson again. Anecdotally, police have been hearing that residents of the park are encouraged not to call us in a time of need. And, and that's so concerning for us. Okay, why would that be the ca case? Like, you'd think if someone was... You know, severely injured and in a crisis, you'd phone 911, you'd phone the police, you'd phone for help. Why would they, why would the police say something like that, that they've heard that they, people have been told not to call? Yeah, and I certainly heard that. I've heard that um, directly from campers and camp organizers. Um, there's a real tension um, in the camp when police arrive. Um, and I've actually witnessed it myself um, sitting there. Um, 
seeing the police come in. Um, they were looking for someone who stole a bike and just the, I mean, it's kind of a bit of a toxic combo. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that when they see police in the camp are, are um, become quite upset. And so yeah. um, I have heard certainly that, that there is a reticence to call unless um, something's extremely serious. But, I mean, in, in that case, like, the balls are being dropped here and, and um, campers aren't safe. Yeah, speaking of Katie Lewis, Strathcona Residents Association about the homeless encampment in Strathcona Park. What about for residents, nearby residents in the neighborhood when they when they call the police? Because I, I know there's been problems, there's been attempted break-ins, where there's situations with needles on the ground and uh, trespassing and stuff like that. So when people call the police in the neighborhood, do the cops show up? Depends. Um, you know, I certainly heard directly from residents um, who have called the police and who have been waiting um, a very, very long time for assistance. But I think that also speaks to just how much stuff is on the, the police's plate right now as well. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we have seen an increased police presence in Strathcona since August. However, um, just the, the, the fact that there's, you know, 400 tents and um, and, you know, we're a very small community and we're just just being just hammered um, by crime and uh, open drug mm-hmm. use and threats to children. And and, uh, and we just continue to see it escalate. Um, and we're very worried because winter's coming. You know, wow. opioid right. deaths are continuing. There's going to be a second surge of covid, um, you know, and there's all hundreds of people are living outside without basic needs for shelter and support. Okay, one of the, the spokespersons down there for the campers is uh, Chrissy Brett, and I've interviewed her a couple of times because she, she always seems to pop up as a spokesperson at a, a lot of these encampments, not just this one. Uh, have you ever talked to her, Chrissy Brett? Yeah, I've talked to her uh, yeah. probably like a hundred times. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, you have talked to her. I've I've interviewed yeah, definitely. her. Definitely. Yeah, you I've know, interviewed she, as well. Yeah, go ahead. She she has a history of, of you know, going around setting up tent cities. Um, yeah. This certainly isn't her first one. Um, she's set up multiple ones on the island. And, you know, I know there are plans to even perhaps uh, set up more. Um, and in her view, she wants to see um, these types of tent cities set up across Canada. Um, and, um, well, I, I disagree with that. Yeah, I think there's a there's a political element to it for sure. I mean, there's kind of a protest element to some of these camps for sure. But anyway, she had she was asked about this this poor person who was severely injured and assaulted, at, lying on the ground with no one to help for up to twelve hours. And here's what she said: like she said that they've got a protocol for checking on people. Here, here's Chrissy Brett. I did walk around, and so did the other matriarch, and ask if anyone needed any type of medical support, and there was no response. As they do like a check, they do a patrol to make sure people are okay. But like, if you're lying on the ground and you're unresponsive, um, how can you res- how can you respond? Like if you shout out if everyone's okay, is everyone okay out there? You know, I mean, if someone's unresponsive and potentially dying um, on the ground, how are they supposed to? Absolutely, reply? absolutely. I thought yeah. the exact same thing, Mike, when I heard that. Um, you know, if someone's beaten and they're they're unresponsive, obviously, whether whether you you know if you're calling out, are you okay? That's gonna not get you the right answers. And, you know, I mean, I, I believe that, um, while there are perhaps good intentions of keeping the campers safe, clearly, um, it's, it's not happening. And, and therefore, you know, it's, it's, um, just become a crisis over there. Okay. What about the assault weapon that was found? That was what, a couple of weeks ago. This is a nasty looking, uh, semi-automatic rifle. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, um, 
It was very distressing, actually, especially as a parent. And, you know, the thought that a a child could have picked up that bag. And, um, yeah, so it was a semi, um, basically a semi-automatic weapon um, that that, uh, was found. Found loaded. Loaded, and the safety was off. Oh, man. Um, And uh, it was found by a construction worker, I think. God, um, because, you know, the Strathcona is full of young families and there's lots of kids that play around that area. Um, and, you know, I mean, that that situation could have ended so differently. And, you know, it's, as a as a mother, it's absolutely terrifying to think that those are lying around my neighborhood. What do you, what do you think needs to be done? Like one of the things that you've pointed out is that in your advocacy for the residents down there, that you're, you're not only standing up for the people who live in the neighborhood who are not in the tent city, but you're worried about the people who live in the tent city, too. And, and we're seeing the results of uh, some of the the situation of people lying on the ground helpless. So, you know, what what needs to be done? I mean, Kennedy Stewart, the mayor of Vancouver, came out the other day and said they've got a plan, but it, it seems to be like many months off. Yeah, um, and we have been working very closely with the city. Um, um, but I think, you know, really disappointing has been the lack of leadership from the province, quite frankly. Mm. Um, and we're, we're deeply disappointed that they didn't come up with any solution yet um, before and even before calling this election, right? And because effectively governance is now at a standstill. Um, yeah. And we we also believe that this simply would not be tolerated in other neighborhoods in the province. So why is it acceptable in Strathcona? All right, welcome back as we continue talking about the Strathcona Park Homeless Camp. My guest is Katie Lewis from the Strathcona Residents Association. 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898 on your cell. Terry on the line. Terry, I understand you live in the neighborhood there. I don't live in the neighborhood. I actually manage uh, 400,000 square feet in the neighborhood. And it's like okay. one block away from the park. Oh, okay. What are you seeing down there? Oh, it's a, it's a war zone here. Um, you know, oh. from uh, uh, bomb threats to threats from individuals, um, from homeless people, garbage everywhere, needles. Um, you know, we have uh, constant break-ins. They drill gas tanks out and drain the gas out of it. Uh, it it's just, I, I've never seen it like this. And I've managed this building for 20 years, 24 years. Okay, so you like managing like this. It's, you. You like manage like a rental building or something? I manage industrial buildings. Yeah, I manage oh, okay. the art building. There's a big art building in that area with uh, 110 studios of artists there. They're being broken into. Uh, they're being threatened when they walk out. We got people walking naked around the place and defecating everywhere. It smells like urine everywhere. Oh, it's, I, I, I've never seen it like this before. Um, and it's embarrassing. Our city should be embarrassed at what we're doing. Our officials should be embarrassed at what, 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 what's what do you going think, on down here. What do you think should be done? Move them along. Is you know, well, clean it up like you've been Oppenheimer. Though? You know, it's, it, it's, it's not a homeless problem. It's a drug and, and it's, a, uh, it's a mental addiction problem. It, you know, homelessness isn't going to cure. These people all have homes somewhere in this, this country. They've well, come I here, think, I well... Think, Summertime, it's a little, it's different because what's yeah. happened here in the summer is a lot of people will come from out of town and they'll yeah. park there because it's cheap. They can tent there. I got, there's a guy with a, a hundred thousand dollar motorhome that's been there for three months. This okay. is not a homeless problem. Okay, Terry, thanks for calling it. I don't know. I, I think they're legit homeless people down there. They're, they're, everyone's got a different story down there. But Katie, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think um, there are, and you know, we have to realize that within this camp, there are definitely different segments of the population. Yeah. Um, there are people that uh, are activists. There are people that live in SROs, but go down there kind of during the day. 
Uh, and there are people that are in genuine need, and I've certainly spoken to some of them. But I, I definitely agree that this isn't just an, a problem. This isn't just a homeless issue. It intersects with mental health and addiction, and and uh, you know right. we have to kind of look at it holistically. I think when we're trying to to make plans about what to do. Yeah, but when he suggests that. You know, the people living down there have got homes elsewhere. That's not true. I mean, not everybody is in that situation. I think there are people down there who are in genuine distress and, and really are homeless. But look, you know, when he says the answer is to move them along, shut it down like they did Oppenheimer, um, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of people who live in that neighborhood would be relieved to see that happen. But then it just moves somewhere else, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it, isn't yeah. then it becomes like a game of whack-a-mole, right? Um, yeah. You know, um, we would like to see them um, not in a public park, um, you know, and if, if, you know, in, in a, perhaps even in a place that was more resourced and managed, um, because right. we, we really have so little green space in Strathcona and we've lost, we lost, we've lost two parks and we, we basically have one tiny little McLean Park. That's it. And, you know, our community deserves access to green space and, and, you know, and, and, uh, We've lost 80% of our green space. Yeah, there's got to be a better way. I think everyone could probably agree on that. Jeremy in Vancouver. Hi, Jeremy. Hey, morning, Mike. I worked in that neighborhood, uh, (laughs) and it's horrible. This is a park of lawlessness, and uh, there's been two fires in those tents in the last couple weeks. There's going to be, you watch, in the next couple months when the candles and the heaters come out as the weather turns, there's going to be a whole bunch more. There's over 400 tents in that place, and it's ridden with crime. There's a bike chop shop in the corner of that park. Um, I have pictures on my phone of so much of this stuff in that park and in a lot of those downtown Eastside SROs. The city, I say the city's best days are behind it. And all these politicians, they all want to get reelected. That's all they care about is their next term and their three- or four-year terms. And they always say to the people, we're going to build more, we're going to make more buildings. Someone should do like a sketch little drawing video. You can build another SRO, another SRO. It's just going to be 100 people, 200 people, 500 people. Thank you, thank you, for, thank you for the call. Say, hate to step on you, but we're out of time. Um, Katie, thank you for coming on. We continue to follow this issue very closely. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. On yesterday's program, I spoke to Isabel McKenzie. She is British Columbia's independent advocate for seniors, and she's been a frequent guest here on the show. And one of the topics we always cover is visiting seniors in long-term care during the COVID-19 pandemic. This has been one of the most troubling and heartbreaking aspects of this pandemic is the deaths that we've seen in some care homes and, of course, the necessary lockdowns to keep seniors safe from the virus uh, during the pandemic, which has resulted in restrictions on visits to care homes. And that's been tough. That has been really difficult for so many of our listeners uh, people who are separated from loved ones. In many cases, they're care providers. And every time we talk about it, we get calls on our open line that break your heart. Uh, here's a little example of some of the calls that we heard yesterday. The last month, we've been having um, one-on-one visits, and I've noticed a huge difference in how he's responding. He didn't even know who I was when I was out at the window. What we've been told is 20 minutes a couple of times a week behind a barrier in a little sort of corner of the facility. They went in and completely stripped my my mother's walls uh, of all her identity. All her grandchildren's got ripped off the wall. All her pictures, all her paintings, everything came down. Really, what are we saving them for when they have dementia and all these other things? 
and we're taking away the things they want most, and that's family contact. Yeah, so there's lots of calls like that. After we had our segment yesterday, I was contacted by Terry Lake, who is the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. They represent uh, service providers in long-term care and assisted living. And I'm very pleased to welcome you to the show. Terry, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it. When you hear those calls, and I'm sure you've had conversations like that with people yourself, people who are frustrated um, uh, that they can't see their loved ones more often, what goes through your mind when you hear calls like that? Well, they are truly heartbreaking. Uh, you know, we've we've all heard those stories, and you know, we we obviously want to keep our residents uh, as safe as possible. But as David Grabowski from Harvard, uh, who's an expert in long-term care in the United States, uh, said in my interview with him this week, people are now dying of broken hearts and loneliness, and um, yeah. you know, uh, it, it's absolutely devastating the impact disconnecting families uh, has had, and. You know, our uh, our members are working very hard to try to increase the ability for people to see their loved ones, and uh, that's why we put out this best possible visitor guide this week to help our operators, uh, you know, reconnect families as, as well as they can. I imagine it really is a balancing act of keeping seniors safe from the virus, but then also making sure they have those vital connections with their loved ones and their family members, because that's critical to their health as well. Absolutely. And don't forget that uh, we need to worry about the safety of our frontline workers. You know, Mike, the real heroes of this pandemic, um, you know, whereas we can all give a shout out to people working in acute care, the the bulk of the impact uh, has been in long-term care. And so our health care aides, uh, our uh, nurses um, and our managers have been working overtime and and, uh, so hard to protect, uh, you know, our family's loved ones that are in care. And we need to make sure that they don't fall ill uh, with an inadvertent um, uh, uh, entry of the virus into a care home. So, you know, we have to balance all of the needs because if we don't have people at the front line, then we can't look after those residents and, you know, it's kind of a vicious circle. So that's why we put out this guide so that people could figure out ways to reconnect families in a a way that's safe for residents, for families, uh, and for our staff. Okay, I want to get into some of the details on that. Let me me play this for you first. Here's Isabel McKenzie, the independent advocate for seniors in our province, and on yesterday's show, and here she is speaking about what care home visits are sort of looking like these days. The broad uh, framework for the visits is the one designated visitor, so there's not multiple people coming in, that the visit needs to be scheduled, that the visitor needs to wear a mask and follow whatever additional precautions a particular care home determines need to be followed. But the visit could be in the room, it could be outside, it could be in a common area, it could be every day, it could be all day. There are no, res- there are no restrictions and, um, I- in that regard. Okay, she mentioned there there are a number of rules. What what is your understanding, Terry Lake, of the current situation? Because it sounds like there's almost like it varies from home to home, and what individual rules are in each facility. Well, there is going to be some variation, and there are a couple of reasons for that, Mike. Uh, the facility design, of course, will um, allow some types of visitations to occur and not others. For instance, at the uh, village in Langley, which is uh, Canada's first dementia village, you know, they have a, a courtyard that is covered that uh, has uh, a glass uh, partition with telephones, so you can have the whole family there connected uh, by telephone and, and through the glass to their loved one without actually going 
going in the facility. Well, not every uh, home has uh, that ability, uh, but we are, you know, we, in fact, we mentioned to the ministry this week in our weekly call that, you know, we should be looking at uh, some funding perhaps for, to allow people to build outdoor shelters that are heated because we want to be able to visit outside, but as you can tell with the weather turning here in Vancouver, that that's not going to be possible in, in many situations. So everyone is working hard to try to um, facilitate uh, more opportunities for visitation, but I also know there's some confusion around what an essential visitor is. And, you know, the, an essential visitor is, um, is uh, defined as those that are paramount to the resident's physical care and mental well-being. So someone going in to assist with feeding or mobility or personal care, they can go in and do that still. And that is what's called an essential visit. And so that's on top of the designated visitor that, um, uh, that uh, you know, we see has opened up since uh, June 30th. Okay. So I want to make sure people are aware of that. Okay. I think that's a very important uh, point because we heard in, in the clip there from Isabel McKenzie that we played, she talked about the single designated visitor. But in, in addition to a designated visitor, you can also have an essential visitor. Correct. Right. And uh, there is some confusion around that. Uh, uh, the um, definition on the BC CDC site, for instance, may be differing from what the health authorities are using. So again, we mentioned that to the ministry this week, and they're working on making sure there's consistent messaging. And, you know, I note, um, you know, we, we heard about the pictures being taken down in someone's room. This is what's called decluttering. And again, uh, some health authorities have been very, um, uh, I would say, over-exuberant about this type of approach, whereas others have been more pragmatic and, and has, it hasn't been as invasive. So, you know, I think, again, the consistency across uh, the health authorities and uh, among different uh, facilities is something that everyone's struggling with at the moment. Yeah. Let me ask you about the, uh, the visitor designations that you mentioned there. So you could have one designated visitor and then you also mentioned an essential visitor that might provide feeding, for example, might come in and someone might come in and feed feed your mom or dad or something. Um, how many essential visitors can a resident have? Well, uh, it's called an essential visit, so it oh, doesn't uh, visit. specify okay. a visitor. So, huh. but you can imagine, and I think I heard on your show, Mike, that someone said, you know, their father doesn't uh, or their husband doesn't eat properly unless she's there for two hours to right. assist him. So that, to me, is an essential visit. And, uh, you know, uh, we want to make sure that people are aware of that opportunity because the last thing you want is someone that is not, you know, uh, carrying out the, those essential activities of daily uh, activities that, are, that occur. And feeding, obviously, is paramount. Yeah. So you, people need to work with uh, care home operators to make sure that everyone has the same understanding. And in our guide, we talk about that a lot, about expectation setting, about communication, to make sure that both the staff uh, and the families all understand the same thing and, and everyone's operating under the same uh, set of expectations. Okay, speaking of Terry Lake, he's the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. So this guide that you've developed this week for, for visits, this is a guide for all care homes in the province? Correct. It's not okay. just limited to our members, but uh, anyone uh, in the um, in the sector can access this, as the public can too. And it's it's on our website at uh, bccare.ca. Uh, and I'd encourage people to take a look at it because I think for families to read this through uh, would be helpful as well as for operators. What What are some of the highlights in there? What would you highlight? Say one or two items in there. The more, most well, important? it's uh, again I mentioned the expectation setting, and that's um, that's really important because if people have different expectations 
conditions, uh, then that's going to lead to anxiety. It's going to lead to uh, miscommunication. And so that's really critical that um, that the care home uh, and the visitors have the same set of expectations. Communication is, is really critical. I talked to a, an operator in Burnaby the other day, and he sends out an email. He knows all of his residents by name. He knows all the family members. He sends out an email to everyone every week, uh, letting them know what's going on in the care home uh, so that everyone, again, is informed and you don't have that level of anxiety. Um, so th- those are really two really important things. And then it also talks about innovative ways to maintain contact. We like to think that older people don't uh, adapt to technology very well, but that's not always the case. And in fact, lots and lots of older uh, British Columbians use um, tablets or iPads and and can communicate with their family uh, and friends that way. In fact, my son-in-law's uh, grandmother uh, has more Facebook friends than I do since she has an iPad in, in her retirement home. So, you know, that, that's a really good way. And all those tips and, and uh, information is set out in the guide.